And they, uh, that would be Jesus and the disciples, came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower, and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvellous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's good to be here with you this morning. Uh, thank you, John, for praying, and, and thank you, Stu, for reading the passage for us. Um, authority is not always a popular concept in these times that we live in. We pride ourselves on being independent and free-thinking. That's something that's quite valued these days. We, uh, it's not uncommon to, to mock politicians and public figures with satire or sometimes just outright abuse. It's common even to talk back to people who have authority in our workplaces or schools or just to simply ignore them. Now, there may be good reasons why our society has gradually veered away from accepting without questioning the views and stance of people who are in positions of authority. There are times when power and authority has definitely been misused and abused. But it's interesting that for a generation that tries to avoid sitting under authority, Whenever someone questions our authority, we feel a pinch of, the pinch of that really very quickly, even for very small reasons. 
if somebody cuts you up or, or drives into the veers into your lane when you're driving, that can be a that can be a pinch point. That was my lane. I was there. You, you know, I, I, I was on track there. Or when a child constantly ignores you when all you want them to do is put their shoes on so that you're not going to be late. How dare they sort of just ignore me or question my authority then? Or maybe it's a friend at school who claims to know more about Pokemon cards than you do after it was you, after it was you that had taught them all that they knew about them in the first place. Whether we like it or not, someone's authority or their perceived authority in comparison to ours matters. In December 2020, just a few years ago, in a place not very far away from here, a parish council Zoom meeting descended into chaos and became an overnight internet sensation when outraged councillors screamed, you have no authority here, Jackie Weaver. Now, whether Jackie Weaver, who was just standing in to facilitate that meeting for someone else, whether or not she did or didn't have the authority to mute the abusive councillors or move them back into the waiting room, clearly, whether or not she had that authority was important to them. They clearly felt that she didn't have that authority. But when the question of who has the most authority goes head to head, things quite quickly can get tense. And that's just what's happening in our passage today. As, as Jesus enters the temple again, and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders confront him, saying, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? This is just the, the day after um, the passage that we read last week, where Jesus surveyed what was happening in the temple and burst into anger as he started turning over the tables of the money changers and the pigeon sellers. It was a display of his utter outrage at God's temple being used in a way that was totally opposed to how it should have been used. The very place that was meant to draw people in to see God's love and mercy a place that should have been a house of prayer for all nations was being used to exploit the weak and to line the pockets of the, more, uh, of the more powerful. But Jesus was having none of it. But once again, that brought him into conflict with the religious elite of the day. Now, in some ways, it's perhaps then no surprise that the chief priests and scribes and elders come up to challenge him today. In their mind, and in the mind of most of the people there in, uh, in the temple, this is their territory. They have status there, they have respect there, and they have the authority there. And from that point of view, Jesus yesterday, when he tipped the tables, had just come in and caused utter, utter, utter chaos. In reality, he was totally justified in his behavior. He wasn't causing chaos. He was cleansing the temple from the chaos that they had allowed. But that doesn't matter to them. He was trampling on their patch. So the question remains, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? 
Now actually, in and of itself, that is an excellent question. If it's asked in, a, in the right way, that's a question we should all ask. Because the answer is really important. If Jesus is just another man, or a guru, or a teacher, the things that he says might be interesting, but nothing more than that. But if he is indeed the son of God, and acting in the authority of God, then that's a game changer for all of us, or at least it should be if we take it seriously. Because that's going to have big implications on my life, isn't it? For, for a start, it's very simplest. It means that I've got to take what he says seriously. So if you're taking notes, or if you prefer to doodle, or if you're filling in your little books of Mark, why not make a note of that now? Scribble this down. Make it part of your doodle, or do whatever you do with it. Where does Jesus' authority come from? Because that's a really important question. But, a word of caution, if you take the challenge seriously of asking it, you have to be willing to accept the answer. Which is not what the religious elders were prepared to do. See, we know from the um, earlier in chapter 11, verse 18, that they were seeking a way to destroy Jesus because they feared him, because all the crowd was, was astonished at his teaching. Jesus knows that they're not asking him out of authority about his, sorry, out of curiosity about his authority. They're asking to try and trip him up, to discredit him, and ultimately to destroy him. They want to shout the first century equivalent of, you have no authority here, Jesus. And that's why Jesus responds in the way he does. Instead of answering their questions directly, he gives us, or he gives them, what at first seems to be a rather strange answer. But it's one that is just really, really helpful in exposing their hearts. Verse 29 of uh, chapter 11, he says, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. Now, we know from the very first chapter of Mark that the baptism of John was all about people repenting, turning from their sins, and waiting for the promised Messiah. And after being baptized by John, Jesus comes into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So you see, Jesus' counter question to the religious leaders is really helpful, exposing the, the hearts of the priests and scribes. If they say that John's baptism was from heaven, then clearly John's baptism was pointing people to follow Jesus and to repent of their sins. So if the leaders say, yes, John's baptism is from heaven, then they're also saying that Jesus' authority is from heaven. But if they say that John's baptism is from man in order to try and discredit Jesus, 
in other words, they're saying that John was a false prophet and a fraud. And if they did that, they're going to lose face in front of the people because all the people believe that John was a prophet. And that would mean they lose their status. And that's one of the things that the scribes and the priests really treasured. Which is pretty tragic because the, the most precious thing that the priests and the scribes should have been pointing people to was God and the coming Messiah. But instead, the most precious thing to them was, the, was their own position in the eyes of the people. And instead of taking a stance one way or another, they just wimp out of the question and say that they don't know, which in a way exposes their hearts even more. They neither had the humility to accept Jesus was who he said he was and to repent, nor did they have the integrity to act in the way that they should have done if they truly thought that John was a false prophet, because their job was to defend the truth and protect the people from false teaching. Really, the fact that they, don't, they say they don't know just shows that they have no interest, really, at all in hearing about Jesus' true authority. All they want to do is just get him out of the way to protect their own selfish interests. And so Jesus responds, okay, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But then immediately... And slightly bizarrely, he uses a parable to show the clear authority with which he's been sent and the shocking, shocking extent that they will go to to ignore his authority. So we're going to look at that in two parts. We're going to look at a shocking rejection and then a shocking response. So uh, from the beginning of chapter 12, Jesus starts teaching this parable. He says, A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Now everybody listening there would have known that the vineyard represented God's people, represented the nation of Israel. It was protected and cared for and built up by the Lord God himself. And the tenants were the ones to look after the vineyard. In other words, they were the priests, scribes, elders and leaders whose job it was and privilege it was to care for the people. Jesus uses almost exactly the same words here uh, as the words that are used in Isaiah chapter 5. So the people there will be clear that he's talking about Israel and the leaders. But the problem in Isaiah 5 is that the vineyard bears no fruit. That's the issue then. But the twist here, or the first twist here, is that the vineyard is producing fruit. So that's a good thing. And so the owner sends one of his servants to claim some of the produce. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. That is the owner's fruit. And so the tenants diligently hand over what is rightfully his. Well, no, that's not what happens, is it? Shockingly, they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So again, the owner sent another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And they sent another servant and that time they killed him. Servant after servant is sent and beaten and killed 
and rejected with nothing returned to the rightful owner. Why? Simply because they have no respect for the owner. They have no love for him. He's made everything that they have, but they treat him with nothing but disdain. If they did love him, they would have respected his servants. But they have nothing but love for themselves, as is clearly shown in the final confrontation in verse 6, where finally, finally, when with nothing else to do, the owner sends his beloved son. Surely, surely they're going to respect the son who comes in the authority of the owner, in the name of his father, the creator and the protector of the vineyard. But no, verse 7. Those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. It's obvious, isn't it, that the son in the parable comes in the name and with the authority of the father who sent him, the owner of the vineyard. But even faced with that indisputable truth, the tenants would rather kill the son than accept his authority. Why? Because verse 7 tells us they want the inheritance. They want the blessings of the vineyard for themselves. Jesus' point, even for a parable, is clear here. You are asking me, elders and scribes, you're asking me who gave me the authority to turn, the ta- turn over the tables in the temple. But even if I told you, you wouldn't listen because you'd rather I was dead. In the same way that prophet after prophet has been silenced over the years, beaten and killed by bad rulers throughout Israel's history, you will now even reject the son of God himself despite every act I've done to show the authority in which I've been sent, healing the sick, walking on water, calming the storm, feeding 5,000, all my teaching of the scriptures. If you'd have understood anything from those things, you should have understood that I have the authority to cleanse the temple. And if you'd have understood that, you still wouldn't listen because you're not interested in my authority. The owner of the vineyard in the parable was even willing to share the blessings. He didn't ask for all of the fruit, I don't know if you noticed that, just some of it. But you, elders and scribes, want the blessings of the kingdom for yourself without God. It's shocking and it's tragic, but it's true. They hated Jesus because they hated the truth And though they would never would have said it, they hated God. It was right at the heart of their rebellion and rejection of him. Because that's what's right at the heart of what sin is. Wanting every good thing that God gives us without God himself. As we often say with the, the younger kids, shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your rule. So let's just pause for a minute because there was 
there was something very specific in the history of Israel that was happening with Jesus' interaction with the religious leaders at this point. But the heart response that they have is ultimately the same heart response that has clung to mankind since Adam and Eve decided that they couldn't trust God's authority and wanted to live under their own rule. It's the same heart response that we have without Jesus. We would rather kill the son than accept his authority. So let me ask you for a minute, what are the ways that you'd rather not listen to Jesus? Is it in things that you know you should do or shouldn't do that you just won't let go of? In what ways are we tempted to, to keep the vineyard, the blessings God has given us, and, and live with no recognition of the God who's blessed us with them? I think that's perhaps one of the biggest struggles that we have in life here. We have so much stuff, so much good stuff, but it all squeezes and drowns out any thought of God. And we're so reluctant to give up what we've got. The gadgets, TV, phone, clubs, gym, work, school, after school clubs, internet. It fills our lives and we feel like if we're living without any of it, it's some kind of affront to my rights. But if we try and squeeze God in, then that seems to be hard work. It's not necessarily that we want stuff it was the status and respect that the religious folk wanted in Jesus' days. So does the fear of losing the respect of others eclipse my willingness to speak out for the truth? A lone voice in a crowd all singing a more popular tune. Corporately, as a church, are the things that we're under pressure to conform to to make, it easy, uh, make life easier for us to be in the world, but things that would actually be us denying Christ. What about our pride? The, the leaders in the temple might have looked impressive, being able to pray all the right prayers, being in the temple every single day, but they're only doing that for the wealth and power and privilege it brought them. But a shocking rejection brings us to a shocking response. Verse 9 asks us, what will the owner of the vineyard do? In the face of such wickedness shown to his son. Well, it's obvious, isn't it? What would anyone do in that situation? He will come and destroy the tenants. Their status and power that they love so much will one day be ripped away from those scribes and elders. And in that sense, they will be destroyed because everything that they were living for will be gone. But rejecting the son means rejecting the one who sent the son, which leaves them with an even more terrifying prospect of facing the wrath of God eternally. But Jesus is not done yet. He has a final twist in the parable, which is even more shocking than the tenants killing the son and even more shocking than the father judging the tenants. Have you not read this scripture, Jesus says in verse 10? 
The stone that the, building, the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, it's a rhetorical question. Jesus knows full well that they've read the scripture. He knows he's offending them by even asking them that. It's another part of Psalm 118. It's sung at the feasts. It's sung at Passover. So they'll be singing it this very week where he's speaking to them. What Jesus is really asking them is, have you not understood this scripture? Have you not understood that it's a psalm calling out for salvation and sung in the hope of the coming Messiah? And it's the same psalm that people sang to him as he entered Jerusalem on the donkey. Save us, Hosanna, they sang. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's all Psalm 118. Have you not understood, Jesus says, that it's a psalm that was sung at the dedication of the temple as it was rebuilt, as the sacrifice was brought through the gates, and where Israel was pictured as the weak, rejected stone that would, in fact, be the cornerstone of God's great salvation plan for the world. Because here's the twist that Jesus puts into it. In connecting Psalm 118 to the parable of the wicked tenants, Jesus tells them all that the very actions that the tenants do to get rid of the Son become the same means by which God's salvation promises are fulfilled. It's as if he's saying to them, you're going to reject me and kill me because you hate the authority I have. The authority that is mine in the name of the Father. But even the rejection and killing of me will only go to serve the good plans that I have in building a new kingdom. My death will be the cornerstone of God's salvation plan. I will be the sacrifice to bring salvation to many. And your wickedness will never get in the way of this new temple that I'm building and never get in, way of, um, in the way of it being called a house of prayer for all the nations, just like the temple should have been. The real shock is not just that the tenants would kill the son. It's that the son would use the authority that he has, the unlimited authority that he has, to allow himself to be killed using the wickedness of man to bring about his eternal plans of saving anyone who puts their trust in him for their salvation. What shocking grace and mercy that is. So as we close, can I urge you to reflect on that question again? Where does Jesus' authority come from? Jesus himself is clear that he's come with the authority of God and nobody will able to, uh, be able to snatch that out of his hands. Tragically, the parable only goes to prove even more the hard-heartedness of the leaders he was speaking to. Even now, they could repent of their pride, but verse 12 tells us that they perceive the parable is told against them and they seek to arrest him. It doesn't change them whatsoever. It just hardens them. But today, if you've seen, perhaps for the first time, the incredible authority of Jesus, and if you've recognised the shocking way in which sin and pride would lead all of us 
on our own terms to reject him, even to kill him given half a chance? Would you put aside your pride and turn to him? And would you, along with thousands of other rebels who once rejected him, would you know the joy of being welcomed into his kingdom as you see the shocking mercy that he offers to anyone who asks his forgiveness? I'll just read um, from 1 Peter just as, uh, as I finish. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let me pray. Oh Lord God, please help us to understand the problems of the priests and the scribes um, but not just problems that they face, but ultimately problems that we've faced through the history of time. We want to take the good things that you give us, and in and of ourselves, we would long to live without you. Especially when it comes to the demands that living for the gospel makes on our lives. Lord God, please forgive us for the ways in which we would uh, take the good things that you give us and forget you. Lord, please help us to turn to you again, um, seeing your mercy. Help us to be shocked at the extent of our sin, but also to be shocked with joy at the, um, at the extent of your mercy and grace. And as we, as we reflect on that, help us to be built up into that new temple that you promised to build, built on the, on the foundation of the death of your son. In his name we pray, amen.